This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Every year, the Administrative Committee hosts seminars that focus on various aspects of ministry from leaders around the PCA. While we had to postpone the General Assembly in 2020, our presenters were gracious enough to record their presentations. We're excited to share those seminars with you on gifts and graces. Listen now to Nathan Parker with his seminar entitled, The Limitations of the Preached Word in Our Disciple Making. Well, hello, my name is Nathan Parker, and I'm very glad that you've decided to join in and be a part of this seminar. Uh, very quickly, just want to give a little background on myself. I am currently the lead pastor of Faith Presbyterian Church, which is located in Watkinsville, Georgia, just a few miles out of uh, outside of Athens. So this is definitely Georgia Bulldog country. Uh, I uh, attended seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, several years ago and grew up in Atlanta as well, served in a PCA church there as a youth minister for quite a few years. After seminary, my wife and I moved overseas and we lived in Durham, England for about three years. And I did a postgraduate degree, a PhD in Puritan evangelism. And uh, after the studies there, we moved to Miami, Florida, where I had the privilege of serving as the the lead pastor at Pinelands Presbyterian Church. And then for not quite a year, we have been here back uh, back home in in Georgia. And uh, it's been been good to be back. Um, Well, the idea for this seminar came out of two opportunities that I had to preach in front of presbyteries. One was the presbytery in South Florida, South Florida Presbytery. And then I was privileged to be invited to give a, a, me- a very similar message to the Presbytery here, which is Georgia Foothills. And so that's essentially what I've done. I've taken that sermon and turned it into a, a seminar. Uh, it's a little bit edgy. I know the title of it is The Limitations of the Preached Word in Our Disciple Making. And both times when I preached this message, which were uh, very similar the two times I preached them, I said, this is either going to get me excommunicated and in trouble, or maybe it will be a challenge that is needed in the PCA. And of course, I hope it's the the latter and not the the former. Um, The main point that I want you to take away, and the thing that I'm going to argue for biblically, is this. Faithful preaching of God's Word, if it is not wedded to evangelism and discipleship, outside of corporate worship will not make a lasting difference in the church. Faithful preaching of the gospel, if it is not wedded to evangelism and discipleship outside of the corporate worship setting, will not make a lasting difference 
in the church. And I would say it really would be less than what our Lord has uh, has called us to in the in the Great Commission. The subtitle from the sermon is to be a little bit provocative. I want to provoke you, or else why would you be interested to to hear what I have to say? The subtitle would be uh, the sermon isn't your main ministry. The sermon is not your main ministry. That is, of course, for those of you who are who are pastors, especially teaching elders. But I know you who are ruling elders get called to preach from time to time as well. Now, in seminary, which I, was a wonderful experience at, at RTS Atlanta, if you're looking for a seminary, if you're maybe under care, I would highly recommend RTS Atlanta. There was an exercise that everybody who's gone through seminary had to do where you are uh, taking homiletics classes and you have to gather a group of, you know, six, eight, ten students and you each preach a, a message to each other, kind of a short sermon and you, you each rotate and you have to listen to each other preach. And the instructions I was given in seminary was like, okay, well, you know, it's only five of your MDiv classmates, but pretend that you're preaching to just a an ordinary congregation of, of a PCA church somewhere. And I, I couldn't do that. I found it very difficult. It felt kind of disingenuous or, or phony or something to pretend as if my five friends in seminary were a whole congregation. And so I told him, I said, guys, you know, I might get marked off for this, but, but I prepared this homiletics message with you five brothers in mind. And in the same way, uh, this seminar and when I preached this as a as a sermon was very much having our denomination, the, the PCA, uh, in mind. So I'd like to just say a quick uh, a quick word of word of prayer as we as we begin. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. I thank you so much that there is an opportunity for these seminars to continue to take place despite our not being able to gather for our, our annual General Assembly meeting this year. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be able to meet next year and uh, our thoughts and our prayers are very much with those who have been affected uh, all around the globe by this COVID pandemic. And I pray that the Church of Christ, your body, would see this as a great opportunity to speak of you to the nations and that people's lives might be transformed as a result. Be with us now as we open your word and as we seek to study and learn more of what uh, you want us to, to know. We pray that uh, Jesus would be made much of in our time, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, I did youth ministry for quite a few years when I was in Atlanta, and after about five years in youth ministry, I became kind of a, a veteran. If you've been doing youth ministry for more than about five years, you're, you're, uh, uh, you're, you've got some staying power. And so what happened was other guys who came to, who were uh, new, younger youth directors in the area uh, sought me out. And so I would uh, have kind of informal, you know, mentoring relationships with some of these other youth pastors. And there was one youth pastor who uh, became a friend in, in those years and uh, he was just starting, didn't really know what to do. So we would get lunch and, and talk about strategies for youth ministry. And I asked him about his relationship with the senior pastor of, of the church. I said, you know, how much time are, are, you, uh, are, are you getting with the senior pastor? Is he really devoting himself to you? Is he giving you some good oversight and some good help? And he said, oh, Nathan, he is so busy that I don't ever see him. You know, he's just got thing after thing, you know, going on. It doesn't doesn't really have many openings in his 
in his calendar. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of on my own having to having to figure this thing out. And I knew about that church that sadly, this was a struggling church. It really was not, it was not flourishing. It was in decline. And that taught me a, a very important lesson that's worth noting that pastors, we can be extraordinarily busy, yet very ineffective in the things that we're, that we're doing. And what happened a short time after that is this pastor resigned. And as most PCA churches do, uh, you, the church, uh, the, the search committee, they fill out this PCA form where they can describe the type of pastor that they are looking for. You know, what, what kind of priorities do you want in the next pastor that you hire? And uh, some of these would be, uh, you know, what kind of type of an emphasis we place on diaconal ministry, college ministry, youth, evangelism, preaching the word, uh, home visitation, community outreach, and, and things like that. And I looked at this church's uh, list of priorities, and it, it turns out that you can learn a lot by looking at a church's profile information and who it is that they're looking in a pastor. You might be able to guess what the top three requirements were, the main three things that they were looking for in their next senior pastor. You know what they were? Preaching, teaching, and worship leadership. You know what the lowest were? Congregational visitation and encouraging the ministry of the laity. I think it gave quite an insight into that church and in my mind at that point, it caused me to say, well, I'm not shocked that that church is dying. Of course, we need good preaching and teaching, but to place no emphasis on visiting people or on encouraging the ministry of the laity when Ephesians 4.12 lays that out, that pastors are to equip saints, the saints for the work of ministry. And I thought to myself, could it be that in the PCA or more broadly in other evangelical churches that we're putting too much weight on exactly what can happen, what life change and transformation can happen in just one week, uh, one hour out of a 168 hour week. And I'm afraid, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm afraid that if they did end up hiring someone who fit that bill, then my fear is that the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ was probably weakened uh, in that part of, of the world. Someone who can just preach a great sermon teach high quality Sunday school classes and lead effectively in worship. If that's your only focus, then it's no doubt that you're not ultimately going to have great effectiveness for, uh, for the Lord. Now it is, uh, it's still true, isn't it? That great preaching will cause a congregation to grow large. That's still true. You get some fantastic Spurgeon like preacher, a church will grow. It's safe to say that if, um, Lig Duncan or Tim Keller or John MacArthur or John Piper came to your city, that church would just immediately grow very large. Um, you can grow a church large through preaching, yet great preaching alone does not produce great disciples. Great preaching does not produce great disciples. And so there, let me repeat my main claim. Faithful gospel preaching, if it is not wedded to evangelism and discipleship outside of corporate worship, will not make a lasting difference in a church. Um, I, I fear that some pastors, they kind of fool themselves into thinking that since my main thing is the word and prayer, according to Acts 6, which I believe 
It absolutely is. Um, they allow those priorities to uh, exclude other vital functions and tasks that all of us who are who are elders, ruling elders, I'm going to argue, as well as as teaching elders. So the pastor says, my main thing is preaching the word, prayer, and administration of uh, of the sacraments. Uh, and so I'm going to spend 20 or 30 hours a week, maybe even more, getting ready for those things and preaching the word. Um, I'm going to argue he is seriously lacking as a New Testament shepherd. I really believe that, and I'm going to defend that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that public preaching is the pastor's main tool for making disciples. It's one of the essential components, but preaching that is divorced from whole life discipleship is not in keeping with the Great Commission. So it can grow a church, great preaching can grow a church large, but it can't effectively make disciples, which is what the Lord uh, gave us as our, as our standing orders. Now, far be it for me to, uh, to stand up here and belittle the preaching of the word. Uh, I would never do, I would never do such a thing. But is it the case that maybe we're putting too much emphasis on the, the corporate gathering as opposed to one-on-one uh, -on -one discipleship and small groups and things like that? All right, now I've painted myself in the corner, haven't I? I'm sure some of you who are listening are going to say, all right, let, let's hear you, let's hear you uh, recover from from what you've said. Well, let me give you um, five reasons why preaching alone is insufficient to make disciples. Preaching alone is insufficient to make disciples. The first is because of Jesus's words in the Great Commission. So if you have a Bible and want to turn to Matthew 28, uh, please do so. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I'm sure you know your Greek Bible well enough to know that the essence of the Great Commission is summed up in one imperative. And that one imperative is make disciples. So that's the quintessence of the Great Commission is make disciples. The others, I'm sure you probably remember from your study or from Greek class, the other three are participles. Going, um, baptizing, and teaching, make disciples. So it's really one, one command. Um, but notice that the Great Commission does not say go and preach sermons to all nations, does it? You see, we cannot collapse the Great Commission into the imperative to preach. We cannot collapse the Great Commission into the imperative to preach. That is, that is reductionistic. That doesn't do justice to, to what Jesus tells us in the Great Commission. Now, I came up with a little syllogism that I want you to evaluate for yourself. And uh, at the end, I'm going to give my contact information. Reach out to me. I would love to interact with you. That's one drawback to doing a one-way seminar like this. But uh, I would, would urge you to, uh, to get in touch with me, especially if you disagree because I, I, I came up with this three-point syllogism. I don't know if you're, uh, uh, <clears throat> if you kind of, you love a sound argument. I, I do, and so uh, I think this one is sound. And so I'd love your, I'd love your, your feedback on it. So here, here's how it goes. If the church's mission is to make disciples, and I think we would all agree on that. That's the essence of Matthew 28. If that's true, 
make disciples is the church's mission. And if elders are to be the church's leaders, right? If elders are God's divinely ordained, divinely appointed leaders over the church, then I would argue it necessarily follows that every elder must engage in making disciples, teaching elders and ruling elders. You all know that there's not a distinction made in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 in terms of teaching or ruling elders. It is anyone, any man who is an elder is to uh, exemplify these uh, attributes, these characteristics. I'm, of course, in the PCA, I affirm that there is some distinction in 1 Timothy 5, 17. But I'm convinced that this is absolutely valid. But the implications of this, I think, are, um, are very, very significant. That every elder must engage in, uh, in making disciples. And here's one thing that it means. Um, that if you think about your session, teaching elders or ruling elders who are, who are listening, you think about the men on the session. Is there anyone that you'd point to and say, well, yeah, for most of us, it's true that, that we, we should be making disciples, but not, not Steve. That's, that's not his thing. He's more kind of an administratively gifted elder, right? He kind of gets everything very organized and, and he's our, maybe serves as our clerk. He takes minutes and everything like that. If he's not making disciples, he is not a New Testament elder. Or if he's a New Testament elder, he's a disobedient elder. The essence of the Great Commission is make disciples. And if elders are to lead the church, every elder must be making disciples. Now, of course, I, I hope it would never be the case. I fear it may, but I hope it would never be the case where you'd say, well, um, James, th this other elder, he's not going to make disciples. His thing is he's been very good in business. And frankly, he gives a lot of money. And, and, and that's kind of his ministry to the church. I don't know what James is, but he's not a New Testament elder. So I pray that we would never think that way. And, and right here, I just want to say, my fellow teaching elders, it is incumbent upon you to lovingly press this upon the ruling elders of, of your church as well. And to say, brothers, we are all to engage in the Great Commission, right? There's nobody going to just sit on the sidelines at our church. It, it, it can't be that way. But I want to ask the question of you too, not just ruling elders, teaching elders. Pastor, are you engaged in disciple making? Is your, is your disciple making just preaching sermons and just praying for people and administering the sacraments? That, that can't be. We're going to see that how that cannot be biblically in just a moment. Do your weekly appointments in your calendar, do they reflect Jesus's priorities for your church and, and for you? by keeping discipleship at the head of everything. So that's the first reason that preaching alone is insufficient to make disciples because of what Jesus tells us in the Great Commission. Secondly, discipleship requires presence, personal presence and engagement with individuals. That's mandatory or you cannot disciple somebody. You can't adequately disciple somebody whom you've never met or who just comes in and hears you preach. You know, someone who's sitting in the back or, or something like that. But here's why, Mark 3. In Mark 3, when Jesus called the 12 uh, to himself, it says, he went up on the mountain and called to himself those whom he wanted, and they came to him. Listen to what 
uh, listen to what, what he says. Verse uh, Mark three fourteen, And he, that's Jesus, appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, three things, be with him, so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now ask yourself, why did Jesus choose these 12? It was for three things. For presence, to be with him, to spend time with him. The disciples spent time with Jesus day after day after day for probably over, over three years. First was presence with Jesus. The second was what? To speak the word, preaching. And then the third was we might call provide help, you know, casting out demons, meeting other, other needs that people, that people had. But notice that it's those three, and in that order, he chose them so that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and cast out demons. I think that that, that order is imperative. He wouldn't just start out by sending some people out to preach. No, they weren't ready to go out and preach until they had been with Jesus for quite some time. Um, can you adequately disciple anyone without a significant time investment? No way. You can't. It's a, uh, uh, I love the word that, uh, that some people use the expression life on life. I think that's what Randy Pope at Perimeter uses. I, I'm, a, I'm a big, big fan of that, that verbiage. Life on life discipleship. That's, that's what it has to be. Um, thirdly, why else is preaching alone insufficient to make disciples? Third reason is because Paul tells Timothy that faithful preaching entails evangelism and not mere exposition and application. Listen to 2 Timothy 4. You probably have this memorized, right? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. What's the next expression? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, right? Keruksantan logon, this expression. A lot of pastors, we look at this and we just say, yes, that's my calling. I just felt the, I feel like Jeremiah, you know, this fire in the bones. I've got to, I've got to, to preach the word, to faithfully proclaim Christ from the pulpit. And to that, I say, amen. Amen. That, that is the high calling that, that pastors have. But we stop reading. We stop reading. We say, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, you know, all, all those things. But listen to how Paul continues in the same breath in verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. In the same breath that the Apostle Paul says you are to preach the word of God, he also says, do the work of an evangelist, and in so doing, you will fulfill your ministry. You cannot preach faithfully unless if you are also an evangelist in the pulpit. And it's true that we certainly proclaim Christ, and we do evangelism, from the pulpit, but is that it? You do your evangelism and then go try to try to hide from people. Are you willing to do that hard work of individual contact? I mean, that's really where evangelism happens most effectively. I would argue you can't do this faithful preaching and evangelism uh, on Sunday morning alone. So if you use the first part of Second Timothy four as your like, ah, that's my verse, preach the word. You need to use the second half in verse five as well. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. 
uh, is a, have a kind of a sad story about this. Several years ago, I won't name the presbytery, but it's part of a presbytery. And there was this pastor in the presbytery, and he had a reputation. And his reputation was whenever there would be candidates who would stand on the floor of presbytery for coming under licensure or coming under care or for ordination, he would ask this horrible question. He would ask them in front of everybody, how often do you share the good news about Jesus with people? And when was the last time that you shared Christ with somebody? And when he would ask these questions, there was kind of like this gasp and people would look around like, oh my goodness, I'm glad he's not asking me that, you know, how awkward. And after that, that event, we broke for lunch and after lunch, I was talking with a few other pastors. By the way, this is when I was under care. I wasn't even licensed at that point. And one of these pastors then said to a couple of us who were standing around, he said, man, I can't believe he asked him that. Like, that was, that was rude. That was really unkind that he did that. And I sat there and thought, that was unkind? That was rude? It's, you're telling me, hold on. It, you're telling me it's rude and unkind and unfair to ask somebody if they're actually doing gospel work of, of evangelism and of sharing the good news about Jesus with people? What? Like, what planet are you from? And the very cynical side of me thought, I didn't say it, but I thought, like, and that's probably why your church is, is, uh, is in decline because he thought that it was unkind to actually hold men up to the standards uh, to which they have committed themselves and devoted themselves in doing this work of ministry. So my charge to you is that you who are pastors would lead the way in your preaching as an evangelist, not only in the pulpit, but also one-in-one. -on -one. And, and I know this is gonna be hard to hear, but uh, I understand not everybody is wired as an evangelist. Not every pastor is wired as an evangelist but you can learn how to do evangelism. And you know what it might be? It might be a very difficult step of, of asking God to humble you and approaching that elder, that deacon, a male or a female who really is good at speaking the good news of Jesus to other people and telling them, look, I understand I'm your pastor, but you're better at evangelism than I am. Could you show me some of the things that you do to talk to people? Could you teach me and help me come along? I mean, what an awesome attitude that would be to, to have. I know that anybody, any evangelist who's godly would jump at the opportunity and say, sure, I don't have it all figured out, but let me just walk you through how I approach this and how I think of it. And until we do that, folks, until we do that, evangelical churches will continue to play musical chairs you know what I mean, where you get some people who come to your church for a little while and they go to they go to the next church, the next big thing. And sometimes they end up coming all the way, all the way back around. But but are people actually coming to faith? Are people actually coming, being born again and, and being converted? And the question is a very tough question to hear, but I, I ask it of a lot of pastors. And I ask myself the same question. How many adult baptisms have there been in your church in the last year? If there haven't been any, or maybe one, or like, I think we had one a couple years ago, like there's something desperately wrong. There's something desperately wrong. Is our church growth strategy to just sheep steal? That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We've got to see people come to know Jesus.
When the PCA wants to do something as a denomination, it depends on the AC. When the PCA wants to get together and conduct the business of the church, the PCA depends on AC to coordinate General Assembly. When the PCA wants to maintain relationships with other denominations, the PCA depends on AC to coordinate interchurch relations. When the PCA wants to study an important matter, the PCA depends on the AC to coordinate study committees. When the PCA needs to hear and rule on important discipline cases, the PCA depends on the AC to coordinate the work of the Standing Judicial Commission. The PCA depends on the AC, and the AC depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about our work and how you can support it at PCAAC.org. Um, and I will say, because, uh, uh, because I want to promote another brother whose ministry I think is doing wonderful things, about six months ago, I became acquainted with Randy Pope's material in this seminar he teaches called Express Your Faith. And um, I, this is a little moment of truth and honesty, okay? When I was in England, I did a PhD on evangelism. I did it on Puritan evangelism. And I saw that this seminar was coming up that Randy Pope was going to teach. And, you know, there's this part of me, just proud Nathan Parker, that was like, well, you know, what could, what could I learn from him? I, mean, I, did, I did a PhD in the subject, you know, but I was like, Nathan, you stupid, proud man, just go. Maybe you'll learn something. And folks, I went to it and I learned so much. It was an absolute blessing. And I've been using that method of sharing Christ where you have an ongoing dialogue and, and uh, walking them through a study of the Gospel of John through these little booklets. And folks, I have seen more fruit in that than I probably saw the last five years of my ministry in just six months. So I urge you to uh, to look into that. It's a wonderful re resource, uh, a, a wonderful tool. I hope that will help you. It's certainly helped me. Well, let's get back to this. Number four, preaching alone is insufficient to make disciples because, and, and I love this one, you ready? Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders enjoins doing gospel ministry from house to house. Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 enjoins, um, prescribes doing house-to-house -house gospel ministry. See, I know a lot of people, a lot of pastors will say, hey, look, I'm making disciples. That, what else do you think I'm doing on Sunday morning? And it is true that preaching the word is one of the fingers on the hand of disciple making. It's one of the vital elements on the hand, but it's it's one of the fingers. It's not... It's not all of the fingers. It's not the whole hand. Um, but if we're not also doing word ministry individually, then I think we are falling short of what the New Testament uh, instructs us to do. You know, folks, there are people in our churches who are members, who have maybe been members for 20, 30 years, who don't know God. And you assume they're fine. Like, well, they were members when I got here. I'm sure they're they're okay. But if you actually take the time to sit down and meet with them and talk with them about the state of their soul, you begin to realize this person's not a Christian at all. Like, they're not even close, not even on the map. Like, I could be more convinced that a Jehovah's Witness is a Christian than this guy. It's personal engagement that we have to have with our people. And that's why Paul tells you and me, 
He told the Ephesian elders, I think we can apply it to our ministries as well, that we should minister the word of God from house to house. You probably know the passage. It's Acts 20, verses 20 and 21. Paul said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Teaching you how? In public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to take that good news, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, take that house to house, individual to individual. That's what we've been called to. I love Richard Baxter's words. Maybe maybe you've heard this before or read this before, but I just, when Richard Baxter says this, I think we should all pay attention because I'm sure he was a pretty effective preacher. I frequently meet with those, Baxter wrote, that have been my hearers for eight or 10 years who do not know whether Christ was God or man. <laughs> I have found by experience that an ignorant sought, like this depraved wretch, you know, that has been an unprofitable hearer so long has gotten more knowledge and remorse of conscience in half an hour's close discourse than they did from 10 years public preaching. Do you hear what Baxter just said? People have been in my church for eight to 10 years. They don't know if Christ is God or man. But in half an hour's close discourse, close conversation about the state of their soul, he saw more benefit, saw them grow more, more illuminated in mind and heart than they had from hearing his preaching for a decade. Baxter adds, I know that preaching of the gospel publicly is the most excellent means because we speak to many at once. But otherwise, it is usually far more effectual to preach it privately to a particular sinner as to himself, end quote. Yes, it is God's word preached in the accompanying power and conviction of the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. But until you bring God's word personally into someone's life, it's possible for them to just fly under the radar for decade after decade. Very often, God does convict people in a gathered assembly, but as often, maybe, maybe more often, it's on a personal basis. So we have to do word and prayer ministry, but we have to apply those things individually as well as uh, corporately. Uh, there was a real quick story. There was a man who I visited with um, a few years ago, and I didn't know him well, didn't really know about his walk with the Lord, and I asked him, uh, whenever I visit people, I, I usually start, once we get past the pleasantries, ask something like, well, you know, tell me how you, how did you come to know the Lord if, if they're a professing Christian? And uh, when I asked him this, he said to me, he said, oh, well, I grew up in, um, you know, this other country and I was an Anglican and then now I'm a Presbyterian. And I said, okay, fair enough. That sounds good. I said, well, how did you, you know, how did you come to know Christ? And he said, well, I mean, you know, like I said, growing up, we always went to Anglican churches. But um, when I became an adult, you know, I'm a Presbyterian now. I'm like getting concerned, like, okay, right. I, I get the, the change of churches. That's fine. But how did you come to know Jesus? You know, was there a time where you realized that you, you know, needed God, that you were a sinner, that sort of thing? And he's like, oh, oh, I, I get what you're saying. And he said, so when I was younger, I was an Anglican. 
But now I'm a Presbyterian. And I just thought, oh my goodness. And that gave me an opportunity to begin to speak with him. It's like, can we talk about this a little bit more? Because this is, um, this is awfully important. Uh, was that man stupid? You know, not at all. He's very intelligent. But was he spiritually blind? Yes. And he had been hearing faithful preaching from several ministers uh, uh, prior to me, guys like Harry Reader and Mike Campbell and Kevin Smith. I know these men are faithfully preaching the Word of God. And yet he had just flown under the radar. And um, so that's that's something that's very worth our um, that's worth our our doing. Otherwise, people will just have this um, this arrested development. Uh, the Puritan by the name of Henry Henry Hammond, he wrote he uh, wrote about the benefits of privately applying the word of God to to your flock. This is this is what he, he wrote. Private instruction is a more likely way to fill narrow mouthed bottles. And such are the most of us to take them individually in the hand and pour water into them than to set them all together and throw ever so much water upon them. You get what he's saying? Imagine these old Coke bottles, these old glass things, and you take a hundred of them and stack them all next to each other, and you just start taking a bucket of water and throw it on there. Uh, how much is going to get into the bottles? Well, some bottles will get a little bit, and a lot of bottles will get, get nothing. And he said, how much more effective is it to pick up each individual bottle and to pour the word into each one? That's, that's the way you fill a bottle. And, and that's also uh, how we should do our, our ministry, not only corporately, but also in individually. Um, that fifth and, and lastly, Jesus's ministry with his disciples was one of individual evangelism and discipleship. This was how Jesus carried out his ministry with the disciples. Jesus was the master disciple maker and the main thing that he did for three and a half years. His main focus was on his disciples. Yes, he healed many people. He preached to the masses and yet his main focus his main legacy was was the uh, was the twelve disciples. See, Jesus didn't disciple the masses; he preached to the masses, but he discipled the twelve. And it's true that we are standing here; we are alive. Christians are alive today because of his success with the twelve. Uh, Robert Coleman uh, rightly notes: Jesus devoted most of his life on earth to these few disciples. He literally staked his whole ministry upon them. Uh, the, the masses flocked to hear Jesus preach, and yet how many of their lives were changed in a lasting way? Not, uh, not as many as we would like, but the, the 12 were certainly um, transformed. Let me give you just my, my definition of, of discipleship. Um, my definition is that it is proactively uh, investing in another person's spiritual growth and progress proactively, deliberately, intentionally investing yourself in another person's growth and spiritual progress. I hope that somebody has done that for you and whether or not they have, I hope that you're you're doing that with, with people. Uh, does your church contain men and women who are makers of disciple makers? Second Timothy 2.2 has this four generational, uh, this four generational idea to it. Um, and that's something very important for us to uh, to consider uh, as well.
I don't think it does. I don't think it's enough for us to just have kind of general speak in generalities for you to challenge people in your church or maybe your your session and to say, um, well, I, I'm sure that we're yeah, we're discipling people. Right. I mean, kind of I mean, we're here. Right. We come to church. Isn't that isn't that enough? It's like, I think we got to do better than that. I don't think Jesus would have been unclear on who the 12 were at any point in in his ministry. So I think we should uh, uh, focus on a few and um, uh, and watch God make a, a, an enormous impact uh, over over time. Um, I pray that, that each of you would focus not only on the word and prayer corporately, but also that you would do so um, uh, individually. One of the best things that you can do is you can bring other people alongside of you as you do this, right? Um, I have a little expression that I use at, at, at my church, and it's to make one, take one, to make one, take one. So if you want to, if you want to make a disciple, if you want to multiply yourself and, and reproduce, you just have to bring someone along with you, bring someone along with you, let them watch your ministry, um, watch how you're serving the Lord. And that will have an enormous impact, uh, maybe even a bigger impact than them hearing you uh, preach up front for, for several years. I notice here that in 2 Timothy 3.10, uh, the Apostle Paul says that Timothy followed his what? Do you, do you remember this list? He says, you, however, have followed my teaching. But then he continues, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You see, he didn't just say, you've heard me preach. You've heard me preach. You followed my teaching, but you've also followed all these other parts of my of my life. Let me apply this in in three ways. And the first is a um, is a concrete challenge um, that might make you uncomfortable, but that's okay. It's never bothered me before uh, challenging people with things that make them uncomfortable. If you are inclined to spend 20 or more hours in, in the pulpit, and, and I know that everybody is different. Some people can do a sermon in six or eight hours. Other people need closer to 20. But if that's your bent, if you have a bent towards study and you and you can admit that you do, you're okay being in your study, just cloistered in your books, um, then I want to challenge you. Why not just try to make a change for the next four weeks and find a way to spend five hours less on your sermon? If you're used to spending 20 or 25 hours, why not just allocate 15 or 20 hours to your sermon and take that time and go house to house and just go through your church directory, your list of your list of members or, or visitors and do some some house visitation. And I think in 20 hours over that four week period, you can probably visit 12 households, something like that, maybe maybe three a week. And I promise you, your jaw will drop as a result of those conversations. It will be so illuminating as to what's really going on in uh, in, in your church and in people's lives. And what the things that they're really uh, they're really struggling with, and then base your preaching off of those conversations. Uh, I, I think God could use that in a um, in a great a great way. Uh, secondly, is start small with discipleship. I would recommend you just start with maybe two or three men in your church. It doesn't matter if they're um, doesn't matter if they're officers or or not, but teach them, show them how to uh, share the faith. Um, explain to them what you're what you're learning. Just have them shadow you and come alongside of you. Take them to the hospital. Take them to hospice care or um, or uh, or wherever it is that you 
that you spend your time. I like this expression, start small, go deep and think big. Start small, go deep and think big. Thirdly and lastly is I wanna encourage you to um, greater transparency and openness about, about your life, who you really are and the things that you're really struggling with. Because you might be thinking, well, if I'm gonna really go deep with, with a small group of, of men, I'm gonna have to be vulnerable. I'm gonna have to open up what's really going on in, in my life. And what's the response to that? Yes, you are, uh, of course. Don't think that, we shouldn't think that just because we're pastors, we're teaching elders or ruling elders, uh, therefore we're immune from great fall, great falls into sin. I mean, that is absolutely obvious. I hope nobody, nobody thinks that as well. I hope that you have somebody that you can open up and really bear your soul to. I think it was Bonhoeffer who said that uh, the one who is alone with his sins is utterly alone. That's an awful place to be. And, uh, and I pray that none of us will ever, um, will ever be there. There's a story of um, uh, Francis Beckwith. He was the one-time president of the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, academic society that I'm a member of. And he was the president at one time, and then later he converted to Roman Catholicism. And at uh, ETS back in 2012, he, he gave a, a talk and he explained why he had left evangelicalism and had become a Roman Catholic. And you know why? It was one main reason. He said that he was so attracted to the idea of um, being able to confess his sins to a priest, to be able to speak his sins out loud. He said it just lifted this burden off of him. And I thought to myself, how tragic is that? How tragic that this guy is going to go and accept this un this huge raft of theological error within Roman Catholicism just because he didn't have a close enough friend who he could really be open and transparent with. I hope none of us ever find ourselves in that place. Um, pastors, you are the um, you are the pace setter. If you don't set the pace in, in, in these areas that, that we've uh, we've looked at today, then then uh, then nobody will. This really has to start has to start with you. And I pray that you would um, commit to making a change today with uh, with the Lord's help. Um, well, in conclusion, I'm utterly convinced that you can grow a large church, one that maybe gets a lot of attention and a lot of activity and things like that. You can you can build a church that way through great preaching, but you can't be a church that, that honors Jesus Christ and his last words to us in the Great Commission, unless if that is uh, uh, brought together with deliberate uh, evangelism and discipleship. I, I wanna close by, by telling you a, a story of something that happened to me when I was a college student. I attended Georgia State University, which is right in the middle of downtown Atlanta. And at one point I was having lunch by myself at Underground Atlanta, which is this area near near the campus. I was sitting there by myself and as I ate, I was, I think I was having my devotional time reading my Bible. And I looked and there was this table near me, a few feet away. And there were these two or three just like tough looking guys, like just kind of big and um you know, kind of scary and intimidating the way they were dressed and everything like that. And I just sensed God telling me, I know you're getting very nervous if you're in the PCA, right? God told you. Well, you anyway, know, I sensed a leading of the Lord that I needed to go and share the good news about Jesus with, with those men. And I hemmed and I hawed and I dithered and I sat there and I prayed for courage and I prayed for strength. And I sat there and, oh gosh, I, I would like to, but what you know, what could happen? And 
And then, you know what happened? They got up and they walked away. And I never shared anything with them. I never even spoke with them. And, and I was just devastated in that moment because I really sensed that that was what God wanted me to do. And it was at that moment of great failure. And um, and maybe through this seminar, you've sensed that, you know, there are some areas that I really have overlooked as, as a pastor. And you're sensing that failure, just like I did when I was uh, when I failed at what I think that God God wanted me to do. And, and I realized afterwards that the very same Jesus that we hold out to lost men and women, the same Savior, Jesus Christ, who is gracious with us when we sin, when we fail him, that Savior that we hold out to others is the very same Savior who catches us in his arms when we sin, when we fail, and when we don't do the things that God has called us to. And it is to... Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, that I want to point you to. Run to him. Run to him now and seek him. If these things are true, I pray, if anything that I've said is true, I pray that by God's grace, you may be enabled to, um, to respond with, with gospel obedience. On the other hand, if anything that I've said is not true, then I pray that you'd, you'd forget about it or reach out to me and contact me. I don't want to teach anything that is unfaithful to, to God and, and his word. Um, I, I would love for you to contact me if, if that's of interest to you. As I said, I'm the lead pastor. I'm one of two pastors here at Faith Presbyterian Church in Watkinsville, Georgia, um, just outside of, uh, of Athens. Uh, so you can contact me through the church. You can email me as well. My email address is nathanparker at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, thank you for joining in. I hope it's been helpful. God bless. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.